Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies, a podcast channel on New Books Network. Uh, I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkron, and today I get the pleasure of speaking with Anway Mukhopadhyay, who is Assistant Professor at the Department of Humanities and Social Sciences at the India Institute of Technology. We're speaking about a really interesting 2020 Palgrave publication, The Authority of Female Speech in Indian Goddess Traditions, Devi and Woman's Planning. Uh, welcome to the program. Thank you, Raj. Uh, thank you very much. It's very nice to uh, talk to you once again. It, it's almost, no, I think it's more than one year, right? We last yes. talked about, uh, yeah, about my Rutledge book. So that was in 2019. Yeah. So how did you publish two books in, in such relatively close succession for the academic world? Yeah, actually, see, uh, Raj, uh, I mean, whenever I uh, Start writing a book. I mean, it, it's not like you know uh, embarking on the journey in an academic way only. It's like some kind of flash, you know, some kind of inspiration that I get. In fact, while I was in Varanasi, I got that flash, you know, uh, which uh, uh, took the shape of the earlier book, the Rutledge book. And as far as this book is concerned, I think uh, it was in 2018 itself that I began to think in this line, you know, how to think about the role of the goddess as an instructor, rather than uh, just, uh, you know, as the demonstrator. Uh, more often than not, uh, in contemporary India, we tend to think about Shakti in terms of this demonstrating function. Uh, but what about the role of the goddess as a teacher? And in fact, you know, it was for a very long period of time that uh, I had been thinking about the Devi Gitas. Uh, I read a lot of these Devi Gitas and I thought that some kind of generic, uh, you know, uh, a kind of new generic genealogy of these Devi Gitas could be established. For instance, if you think about the uh, Devi Gitas or the Shapta Gitas, that you find in various Puranas. For instance, there is one in the Kurma Purana, there is one in the Mahabhagavata Upa Purana, there is one in the Devi Bhagavata Purana, and the Devi Bhagavata Purana, Devi Gita is the most celebrated one. But uh, I was also thinking about the Vidya Gita that is there in the Tripura Rahasya. And uh, it occurred to me that one could probably uh, do something on uh, these Devi Gitas, uh, and one could probably talk about them as a cluster of texts. So, uh, I mean, that, that was not just inspired by the uh, Srimad Bhagavad Gita, but that was rather, uh, you know, a unique uh, tradition within Shaktism itself. Of course, there is an influence of the Upanishads, uh, um, the Srimad Bhagavad Gita uh, from the Mahabharata, that's obvious. But still, it appears that there is some kind of originality as far as this Shakta tradition of the Devi Gitas is concerned. And I wanted to work on them. At first, you know, I thought of uh, translating 
this text either into uh, Bengali, which is my mother tongue, or into English. But then it uh, occurred to me that uh, I could probably think about them uh, critically, and not just you know in terms of uh, uh, in terms of doing some kind of translation. And then I began to think about recontextualizing these texts in the contemporary world. And then uh, you know I. Uh, Sort of, I, I came up with this concept of uh, mansplaining and uh, woman'splaining later on, uh, and it occurred to me that in India you have this very unique alternative tradition, which might be called the tradition of woman'splaining, uh, but that is not uh, uh, just a kind of uh, you know feminization, uh, feminization of say uh, uh, mansplaining. That's something else, something different. So that's how I began to think about these issues, and uh, then I thought that I shouldn't just work with the Devi Gita's, but I should try to recontextualize them within a larger tradition, where I have uh, come across uh, the figure of the Devi as a powerful speaker, as a speaker who has some authority, uh, not some authority, in fact, who has the greatest authority, and has. Speech is the speech of the, uh, you know, the greatest spiritual illuminate because she is, as it were, the supreme guru. Uh, and then I began to think about uh, sort of, uh, you know, constructing a different kind of genealogical paradigm. And uh, here, in fact, my training as a student of literature uh, came to some use. Because uh, whenever uh, you know we talk about uh, literary genealogies or literary historiography, we actually talk about uh, the different kinds of genealogical uh, sort of recontextualization uh, within which you can place certain texts. You know, uh, so I thought that I should try to build up a new kind of genealogy thematically, of course. Uh, I mean, which is which is millennia old. I mean, if you look at this tradition, you will find that uh, it's at least as old as the Rigveda, because you have the uh, Devi Sukta there, and in a way, you may uh, say that in the Devi Sukta too, uh, the goddess is a speaker. I mean, not just a speaker, but also a teacher in a way, because she is reveling her own self, and this self-revelation is a trope which occurs time and again in the later Hindu texts, in, in the Puranas, and of course in the Tantras. But even without getting into the Tantras, uh, we can uh, probably chart out a very uh, vast arena where the goddess appears to be a powerful speaker, an authoritative speaker. And it was not just that. What is interesting is that this uh, uh, figure of the goddess as an authoritative speaker also has her, um, you know, patient male listeners, and this is very interesting because when we talk about speaking um, or say silence, whatever, particularly in the domain of gender studies, we often tend to forget that the communication circuit is about speaking and listening. It's not just about speaking. I mean, I can speak, but if no one listens to me, then that speech is uh, meaningless. So uh, what about the figure of uh, the listener, particularly the male listener of female speech? That idea intrigued me for a long period of time.
And I thought that uh, this kind of tradition could be seen as, uh, as an alternative tradition that is uh, not just alternative to, say, the Western tradition of mansplaining, but also the Indic tradition of mansplaining. I mean, we can't say that in India we have just a feminist tradition. Even within the goddess traditions, there are a lot of um, you know, contexts where you have a patriarchal appropriation of, uh, say, uh, the feminist potential of the goddess tradition, Prabhadi. And so the feminist tradition gets, I mean, I won't call it a feminist tradition, but nevertheless, the feminist potential of a goddess tradition gets uh, uh, sort of appropriated or say overshadowed by the patriarchal uh, sort of the overarching patriarchal structure within which it is uh, articulated or it is forced to articulate itself. So that was the idea which I was thinking of. And uh, then I thought that I should try to embark on this new journey of finding out a very new kind of uh, uh, sort of not exactly finding out, but establishing a very new kind of genealogy of the goddess traditions, where the goddess is primarily a guru, and she is presented not just as a guru, but probably as the guru, you know, so, so that was the idea which intrigued me. So two questions for you, you can answer um, in whichever order. The first one is, what exactly do you mean when you use this term woman'splaining? And the second is, regarding these examples where the goddess uh, is a guru, what examples do you look at in your book? Yeah, you see, when I think about this concept of women's splitting, actually there are two problems. And these problems have been highlighted by many scholars of the goddess traditions uh, as far as the Indian traditions are concerned. One problem is that, uh, I mean, you can't really say that there is, uh, I mean, there are uh, sort of obvious parallels between the Western feminist tradition and the Indian goddess traditions. That is uh, something which the scholars of the Indian goddess traditions have always tried to, to uh, make us understand. And that is something which I also acutely understand. I can't say that uh, the Indian goddess traditions are quintessentially feminist. But I also believe very strongly that there are a lot of uh, things in the Indian goddess traditions which, uh, which uh, display some kind of feminist potential. And of course, even though the Western feminist tradition and these goddess traditions are not, uh, you know, quote-unquote feminist in the exactly same way, uh, there are nevertheless points of commonality and that's why I uh, picked up this concept of women's planning. In my book, I actually use the term mass planning in the sense uh, it's used by Rebecca Solnit. And as far as the concept of women's planning is concerned, I have uh, uh, focused on the work of uh, Neil Stevens, where she talks about you know uh, how uh, women's planning is different from man's planning, and women's planning is not. About uh, sort of um, uh, exerting your authority over the others uh, in an oppressive way, but rather it's about sharing of one's experience, and it's a kind of non-oppressive communicative mode, uh, which is not, as I said, just the uh, sort of the feminized version of uh, mass planning, but rather something different. And according to Stevens, it's something which offers you a different paradigm of communication. And that's why I took up this term, even though uh, I don't uh, argue in my book that whatever we find in the goddess traditions in India 
can be called women's planning in the sense it's, uh, I mean, the term is being used in the West. Because as I said, there are a lot of differences as well as similarities between, you know, uh, authoritative female speech uh, in the Western feminist tradition and authoritative female speech in the Indian goddess tradition. So there are differences. For instance, you know, uh, one might argue whether, uh, I mean, one might question whether the goddess can be seen as a woman at all. And that is one of the most intriguing questions which I seek to uh, sort of respond to in my book. For instance, you know, I talk about the, uh, the connections and the parallels between goddesses and women which are there, which are probably not very obvious always, but uh, more often than not, if you look deeply in these texts, you will find that there are certain connections between uh, the authoritative uh, speech of the goddess and the authoritative female speech in general. So I have argued that there are two ways in which you can draw to the feminist potential of these goddess traditions. One is that you can probably think about the ways in which uh, uh, women today can appropriate, uh, uh, you know, the, the feminine authority which is uh, involved in the speeches of the goddess in the Indic traditions. And on the other hand, you can also think about the, uh, the kind of feminist historiography which can probably be constructed uh, from uh, the direct, most of the times indirect, but sometimes direct too, uh, sort of connections that one might find between the authoritative female speech of the goddess and the probable authority of women in certain historical uh, and geographical contexts in India. For instance, if you think about Deidaki's work on, uh, on uh, the tantric texts, from uh, from Assam, I mean, from what is now Assam, uh, the northeastern part of India. Uh, she, she was working on the uh, texts that were produced in the uh, in the Kamakta region. Uh, but you might find that there are probably you know some kind of historical connection too between uh, the figure of a powerful goddess and uh, uh, you know uh, powerful women. But I, I also know that this is, uh, this is an issue which is very complex. And I can't just say that uh, the goddess as a powerful female figure is always a prototype for, say, powerful women. That's not always the case. And in fact, in certain cases, you have uh, some kind of tension and sometimes even uh, some overt dichotomy between uh, a powerful figure of the goddess and, uh, on the other hand, disempowered women. So probably the text which is, uh, which is celebrating the power and authority of the goddess is also, in a way, presenting certain elements of which are anti-feminist in nature, as has also been uh, noticed by uh, Shiver Mackenzie Brown. But what is interesting here, uh, I mean, what interested me rather, is that there is a possibility of building up a dialogue between the concepts of, say, mansplaining, womansplaining, the contemporary modes of Western feminism, and the Indian goddess traditions. And that was very important for me, because more often than not, there is a, a kind of non-dialogic engagement with the goddess traditions, where you find that 
either some scholars are arguing that these goddess traditions are potentially feminist, or there are some other scholars who are arguing that uh, these are anti-feminist or you know these have nothing to do with feminism at all. Uh, so I thought that both of these uh, uh, modes of argument were actually uh, simplistic. For instance, if you say that uh, the goddess is the is not going to empower women at all, then also I think you are making a simplistic statement and, and, and also a reductionist statement. And if you say that the goddess is the panacea for all the problems uh, as far as gender is concerned in contemporary India, then also I think that's going to be a simplistic uh, kind of uh, argument. So I think that what we need to do in this context is that we need to have a very nuanced understanding of, uh, say, uh, the Indian goddess traditions. We need to begin with the proposition that the goddess traditions should not be excavated only, uh, you know, only for the sake of finding out something which is feminist in a ready-made way, but rather we should try to look at them, or rather we should try to engage in a dialogue with these goddess traditions from our contemporary vantage point so that there can be a dialogue, there can be a productive dialogue between our feminist concerns from, from today's perspective and the Indian goddess traditions, which, which have foregrounded the authority of female speech uh, in various ways. And it has happened through millennia. For instance, you know, uh, more often than not, uh, uh, there is uh, this misconception that uh, only the tantric dimension of the goddess uh, of the goddess cultures is uh, uh, truly empowering for women. But if you look closely at uh, at the uh, at the genealogy of authoritative female speech in the Indian goddess traditions, you find that there is some kind of a continuum. Even though uh, there are uh, obvious discontinuities as well, uh, but I would argue that there is some kind of continuum where you have uh, a kind of reiterative trope of uh, the authoritative female speech associated with the goddess traditions. Sometimes it comes in the form of, say, uh, female gurus who are revered as living goddesses, as we have seen in the case of uh, Ananda Bhima or in the case of uh, Sharadama, I mean, the wife of Sri Ramakrishna Paramahansa. Uh, or you have uh, the figure of a goddess who is teaching somebody. Okay, uh, for instance, if you take the figure of Uma in the Kenu Upanishad, you find that she is actually uh, uh, instructing uh, Indra in the Brahmavidya. Uh, and in the Lakshmi Tantram, you have a similar kind of situation, a similar kind of context where Lakshmi, Goddess Lakshmi, who is the great goddess there, uh, she is instructing uh, Indra. Uh, similarly, in the cases of the Devi Gitas, you have the goddess uh, instructing either uh, Himalaya within a domestic setup, or in the case of the Devi Bhagavata Purana, uh, Himalaya and the gods in a kind of uh, celestial setup. So I think uh, we need to look at, uh, or, or rather, we need to uh, sort of recontextualize all these different goddess texts within this alternative genealogy of, uh, you know, uh, authoritative female speech. So that history, that historical tradition needs to be captured and analyzed. Uh, 
Uh, and uh, to answer your uh, second question, uh, I would say that uh, writing this book was in a way very difficult for me because I wanted to engage with texts from different historical periods as far as the uh, Indian goddess traditions are concerned. Uh, and that's why I had to work with the Vedic texts. I had to work with the various Upanishads, not just the canonical Upanishads, but also the Shakta Upanishads. And I tried to, <coughs> excuse me, I tried to uh, sort of establish the connections between these texts. That, that was, again, a very difficult job. Uh, because uh, when you do that, uh, you are faced with a lot of questions. For instance, one might ask you, uh, what, what is it exactly which drives you to connect, say, uh, 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 an Upanishadic text with a tantric text? Because uh, you might say that the socio-historical context of the genesis of these texts uh, are not similar. That's true. But the point is that when we look at the Hindu tradition, we need to look at uh, it as a living tradition. Uh, and, and it's a very complex tradition, which has always expanded itself uh, and accommodated diverse points of view. Uh, uh, besides, it's also a tradition which has always rewound the earlier texts. For instance, you know, as far as my perspective is concerned, I might say that for me, the Devi Bhagavata or say the later Devi Gitas are in a way reworking, not just uh, the Upanishads and the Gitas in generic terms that, okay, there is an, uh, an Upanishad which is talking about uh, the abstract absolute, so we are going to talk about the goddess. It's not just that. Uh, it's also about you know, reworking. Uh, uh, certain tropes, for instance, you know, the trope of the goddess as teacher, the trope as uh, the trope of the goddess as someone who sort of uh, interrogates male pride in certain cases. And, and I have uh, discussed that in my book, that you know, it's there in the Tripura Rahasya too, where you have um, uh, the sages uh, uh, acknowledging that in spite of their intellect, I mean, in spite of, uh, you know, having a kind of, you know, mammoth intellect, they are not able to comprehend the very subtle truth, the very subtle spiritual truth. Uh, so ultimately, it is the goddess in her transcendental uh, form, or rather, you know, in a kind of formless uh, entity. Uh, it's in that way that the goddess uh, enlightens them. So, uh, and you have a similar kind of situation in the uh, Nigama texts, uh, in the tantric tradition as well. For instance, there you often find uh, Shiva in the form of Vaidava telling Devi that in spite of uh, having a great knowledge of all these different Shastras and Darshanas, he's not really able to grasp the ultimate spiritual truth. And then the goddess instructs it. So uh, this work, I mean, this book of mine is actually uh, about uh, finding out and establishing these connections between texts, which, uh, which have more often than not been seen as, uh, as unrelatable, you know, as texts which are coming out of different socio-historical contexts. Fine, they are coming from social, different socio-historical contexts. I do acknowledge that. But the point is that there is a connection between them. Because we need to understand that the tradition, uh, 
which uh, these texts inhabit, uh, those traditions are actually living traditions and they are continuously evolving traditions. So that has been my uh, sort of approach to this issue. So what's at stake here for you? What is the, what is the central um, point you wish to, to demonstrate with this book? Yeah. Uh, now, you know, the central point uh, is that, uh, as I said, uh, when you look at the Indian goddess traditions, you need to look at the figure of uh, the goddess uh, as uh, a spiritual enlightener. You know, so as the ultimate spiritual enlightenment, as it were. This is one thing. The second thing, as I said, it's also a project of, I, I can't probably use the term, you know, alternative historiography because historiography would involve probably a very different kind of methodology uh, from what I have used here. But of course, I wanted to uh, uh, sort of, uh, you know, bring to the fore uh, an alternative genealogy of uh, the goddess traditions. So whenever we talk about the goddess traditions, the rise of the uh, Mahadevi and all these things, we tend to focus mainly, uh, you know, on the figure of the goddess as the demon slayer. So that is what I wanted to move away from. I wanted to uh, look at the other functions of the goddess in the Indic traditions. And my question was, so where these other functions of the goddess, especially you know, this function of spiritual education or spiritual enlightenment, this function which also connects the goddess with the, with the, uh, with the archetypes for female gurus in the Hindu traditions, how can uh, we find uh, the impact of these other functions, you know, this, uh, this kind of educative function of the goddess? Uh, on men, what was the impact of that on uh, on Indian men? So uh, a main focus of this book is how uh, men have transformed uh, the the paradigms of masculinity, uh, the contention and paradigms of masculinity, uh, when they have come in contact with uh, these traditions of authoritative female speech. Uh, and in order to do this, I tried to, again, establish a certain connections between the mythological texts, for instance, if you think about, uh, you know, the approaches of the different male figures in the Puranas, or say, uh, even in a text like the Tipurada Hasya, uh, where you have uh, uh, the ultimate acknowledgement of, uh, of uh, the inadequacy of the male intellect. Uh, and 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 on the other hand, the celebration of uh, the supreme uh, uh, goddess as the supreme source of spiritual wisdom. So, so how that leads to uh, some some kind of assumption of humility on the part of the male subject, and how this is something which we find again in the tantric traditions. So, as far as the work the tantras are concerned, you 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 have a lot of. Uh, you know, uh, existing uh, works on these issues. But nevertheless, I found that uh, whenever we talk about the goddess traditions, we mainly tend to talk about uh, the issue of femininity or say uh, how, uh, how the goddess is, uh, you know, uh, is able or unable to contribute to 
uh, the discourse of feminism and all these things. But I tried to move away from that and to address this issue from the perspective of masculinity. But you know, when men are listening to this kind of authoritative female speech of the goddess, I mean, within the uh, within the Puranic context or even within the tantric context, uh, what is the impact of that, and what kind of alternative model of masculinity emerges from that? On the other hand, I also had this query: How has this translated into the real life uh, sort of men and women and their uh, sort of attitudes to each other? So, uh, for that, I also included uh, you know uh, uh, in my book certain elements which are related to uh, the contemporary indian society for instance i have dealt with one bengali text in detail and it is actually a reworking of the uh, trope of uh, or not exactly trope the tropos of uh, the vrigu uh, pariksha you know that that uh, the test to which uh, the sage vrigu had put uh, the Trinity, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. So that uh, story is deliberately reworked by uh, by this Bengali writer, Proshenjit Basu. And <coughs> this text, Parvati Purana, uh, is actually presented as an alternative kind of mythological text, an alternative kind of Purana. Where it is, uh, uh, I mean, where the entire story that you find in the mainstream texts uh, is uh, looked at from the Shakta perspective, and uh, the supremacy of the goddess is put forward. And interestingly, there Shiva is. Uh, Shiva says that uh, he's a devotee of the goddess. He's a husband, but uh, also a devotee of the goddess. And then uh, Vishnu says that uh, he is also a devotee of the goddess. And ultimately, we find that uh, it becomes a theological text rather than the, uh, rather than a kind of the theological uh, sort of uh, text that uh, declares the supremacy of Vishnu in other contexts. For instance, whenever we think about that particular topos of the Vrigupariksha, we, uh, we find the supremacy of Vishnu being declared over the other gods. And that has some kind of uh, connection with the, with the announcement of uh, the supremacy of Brahmins as well. So in a way that also leads to some kind of uh, Brahminical hegemony. But uh, uh, in this work, Prashantit Basu actually uh, demolishes that androcentric kind of theologi theological paradigm. And he also interrogates uh, uh, the kind of uh, Brahmin-centric interpretation of the Vrigapariksha that you often have. In the mainstream cultures uh, of Hinduism, so uh, these are the texts of which I worked with. I mean, of course, I worked with the main Sanskrit texts, but uh, I also uh, drew on a lot of vernacular texts because it appeared to me that without referring to these Bengali texts or, say, in some cases, uh, certain Hindi texts, I won't be able to uh, relate really the traditional uh, you know, uh, Indian goddess cultures with the contemporary scenario. Because if I have to talk about the contemporary scenario, then I will have to look at the interplay between the Sanskrit texts and the vernacular texts. And that's why uh, this work is very much grounded in the here and the now, uh, as well as in the goddess traditions of India.
So is this uh, a line of thought that you are pursuing? Uh, what are you working on now? Yeah, I am now working on, uh, you know, after uh, this work is finished, I am now thinking about, uh, you know, some other ideas, again, related to the goddess cultures in India. For instance, I'm thinking about uh, a possibility of finding out an Indian model and, and a kind of Shakta model of existentialism. You know, I mean, this idea is there only uh, in a rudimentary form in my mind. I don't know when this idea is going to take shape uh, in a proper way. But nevertheless, I am uh, thinking about this a lot, uh, you know, these days. And uh, when I talk about a Shakta paradigm of existentialism, what I'm trying to look at is that uh, here you have a kind of foregrounding of this feminine force as, as great nature. Okay. And I think, I mean, of course, I mean, at this stage, my ideas are not very coherent. So probably, you know, I won't be able to argue in this line in a very coherent way. But uh, at a rudimentary level, what I'm thinking is that in the Western model of existentialism, probably, uh, you know, the agency of nature is seen, uh, either it's bracketed off, or it's seen as a very problematic thing. And that is something with which probably, uh, you know, with which you can probably connect the Vedantic model of thought as well. But I think when we think about the Shakta philosophers or even, uh, you know, uh, certain writers, particularly I'm thinking about Vivekananda, because uh, even though we all know that he was the great Vedantist, uh, there is also this continuous reference to the great cosmic force of Kali, in his writings, particularly in his uh, intimate interactions with his friends, uh, with Nivedita, for instance, with Sister Nivedita, uh, and with, uh, with his Guru Bhais, for instance. Uh, so, so this idea that somehow, you know, even though you try to become completely, uh, you know, independent of nature, somehow you find that there is... Uh, a kind of paraprakriti or a great nature uh, which has a higher agency and how do you try to reconcile your uh, your desire to get uh, liberated from all binding factors and how do you reconcile that kind of desire with this uh, with this uh, subconscious acknowledgement of a higher force so which is feminine in nature you know i mean is a reconciliation possible or is it not and so I'm trying to look at these tensions, but it's, uh, it's uh, uh, now at the rudimentary stage. So, uh, so I can't say that, uh, I mean, this uh, uh, sort of, uh, this paradigm has been well articulated in my mind here. Well, that sounds interesting. Sounds very interesting. Um, perhaps we'll have a chance to speak about that book whenever it is birthed into the world. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we have uh, taken enough of your time for one day. And so we will sign off for those of you listening. We have been speaking uh, with uh, Anwe Mukopadhyay, his 2020 Palgrave publication, The Authority of Female Speech in Indian Goddess Traditions. Um, thank you very much for appearing on the program today. Thank you, Raj. Thank you very much. Until next time, keep reading, keep listening, and obviously keep contemplating the mystery of the Devi. <laughs> Take care. Sure.
Thank you very much. We'll be in touch.